0: Trevor Alici is Overcritical, sponsored by Big Village Anchovies. The bigger the village, the smaller the fish. Go get the stunt guy. <laughs> <laughs> and welcome to the jungle. I am Trevor, your host. And we are focusing this episode on one last loose end from the initial show, and that is my hatred—or maybe hatred's too strong a word—my dislike for the band Guns N' Roses. If you recall, that was uh, that was a, a dagger against me on that first episode. So we're going to get into that today. Um, But before we get started, I want to remind you that the podcast has an email address so you can send me your overcritical opinions about the show. Um, You can also offer some suggestions for upcoming episodes uh, but remember the spelling of Trevor Aliche. That's important. Aliche has one C. There are two C alicis out there. And they are the rich, famous, and infamous Alichis. And I'm not one of them. So just make sure that you have one C in Aliche so email the show, TrevorAlici at gmail.com, let me know you're out there, and yeah, I'll look for you there. Um, so we'll get started here on <laughs> Guns and Roses. I found an interesting article that we'll take a look at first, and then um, based on what the article has to say about the band, we will then move to one of their, you know, most popular songs and talk about it. See where it, you know, may succeed. See where it fails. And then I'll come back and give you my own personal opinion of things. (laughs) All right. Um so meet me back here on the other side of the break. All right. We're back. And up first is an article written for Rolling Stone magazine, November 17, 1988, titled The Hard Truth About Guns and Roses, subtitled Finally, Some Bad Boys Who Are Good. <laughs> <laughs> Written by Rob Tenenbaum, and the article, just an overview, is you know sort of a profile of the band um, on the cusp of you know making it big. Uh, it starts out, you know, focusing on it seems their uh, favorite pastime as a band was annoying each other to the point of getting in fights with each other Um, followed very closely behind getting drunk with each other and, you know, taking drugs with each other and whatnot. So, um, so it focuses on the band as a whole. And then as the article progresses, it features each sort of member of the band and gives a little, you know, sort of background information Uh, interviews each one, um, sort of talks about how the band both functions and is dysfunctional at the same time. But what I found most interesting about the article is it briefly um, tries to categorize Guns N' Roses um, into a genre and talks about the differences between genres and the importance of understanding what each genre the sort of the expectations of each genre so i'm going to try to read some passages here from the article that focus primarily on these sort of genre implications quote if you don't look any deeper than the band members tattoos you might compare Guns N Roses to Poison Rat Mootly Crew <laughs> and any other of the dozen or nearly identical heavy metal bands currently being pushed by the music industry. The Gunners mister um, Tenenbaum quite frequently refers to Guns N' Roses as the Gunners. I don't recall that being a thing back in the late 80s, but okay. Um, The Gunners, continuing the quote, engage in the same antics revolving around booze, drugs, and women. They trumpet their music as rebellious. They claim to play for the kids, but Guns N' Roses don't. Play heavy metal they play a vicious brand of hard rock that especially in concert is closer to Metallica or to punk than to heavy metal they are a musical sawed-off shotgun with great power but erratic aim they veer from terrible to brilliant in a typical set often within a single song so let's stop there for a second because i've got couple things to say here. <clears throat> Number one, I wouldn't, uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm familiar with some of these bands, and I wouldn't associate, for example, Poison with heavy metal. Um, I mean, hair metal, maybe, but heavy metal, I'm not so sure about that. And then Metallica, which was mentioned a little bit later in the passage. <laughs> I associate them with heavy metal, particularly their early stuff was pretty, pretty heavy, pretty metal. So I don't know that these examples are very helpful in, you know, sort of illustrating the differences between heavy metal and hard rock, um, but the article continues with this idea in the next paragraph. Um, so let's move on to that. <clears throat> Quote. And more important, Guns and Roses really do play for the kids. The kids, this phrase is in quotation marks, so. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know, maybe we'll swing back around to that, talk about that a little bit. Uh, metal bands, so this again, quoting from the article, metal bands base their images on a fantasy life that has no relation to the daily reality of being a teenager. Kids may idolize or envy David Lee Roth, but they have little in common with him. Uh, I'll just stop here and just say uh, I wouldn't associate David Lee Roth with heavy metal. I (laughs) I just wouldn't, you know. Um, In 88, he was you know, I think he was still the lead singer of uh, Van Halen. I don't think Van Halen was a heavy metal band. Um, but continuing with the article, quote, Guns and Roses are young enough to remember what it was like to be 17. And it goes into the band members' ages in 1988. Um, so, again... The article writer, Mr. Tenenbaum, associates sort of fantasy life with heavy metal bands and therefore hard rock bands are more realistic in their um, depictions of life in their songs. And uh, Mr. Tenenbaum goes on in the article to delve into that a little bit. So skipping a paragraph or two, and now quoting, Guns N' Roses have less in common with metal acts than with rap artists like Public Enemy, which project a lethal toughness while urging self-improvement. They also bring to mind the early Rolling Stones, who won a similar notoriety for singing about spite and hostility. And if the Gunners... Go beyond what the Stones sang about, because times are rougher. They are a brutal band for a brutal times. Unlike the Stones, they don't keep an ironic distance between them and their songs. And then um, we have a quote from Slash, the lead guitar player. Our attitude epitomizes what rock and roll is all about. At least what I think rock and roll is all about, which is all that matters. You know how some bands go out and the whole thing is going completely wrong, but they can put on a good show anyway? We're not like that. We fucking bleed and sweat for you, you know? We do a lot of things where the other bands would be like, go get the stunt guy. (laughs) So, again, the basic difference here is that heavy metal is more of a fantasy Hard Rock is more the reality of the situation at the time, late 80s. And Guns N' Roses is more of a realistic... They're trying to portray their lives, the lives of the kids, in a more realistic way. But let's uh, take a minute to come back to that term, the kids, what it could mean. Um... You know, based on the reading of the article, it seems the kids refers to, you know, the the younger generation, the youth of America, um, both urban, suburban, and even rural. Um, I found it interesting that uh, <laughs> Steve Earle was referenced in the article, and he's uh, labeled a country singer by the writer. Um, but I think, you know, I think the kids is supposed to represent just the younger generation. And what's important to them is uh, authenticity. So the, you know, connection between hard rock and rap is this interest in being authentic. Um, now, I do have a quibble with that, though. I don't know, late 80s, l a bands um I don't know how interested in authenticity <laughs> people who move to l a to become you know uh famous artists I don't know how i don't know the, the article doesn't you know delve into that a little bit, but there's there's definitely a healthy dose of fantasy land for uh, artists who Go to LA to become famous. Um, you know, Steve Earle, as I mentioned, uh, the the quote that's he gives uh, for the article is that Guns and Roses are what every LA band pretends to be, but again, they're an LA band. Is that are they really able to provide an authentic uh, depiction of reality for you know some kid in the suburbs? for that midwestern kid and and does the kid or do the kids are they really looking to a band like guns and roses for authenticity or are they looking to a band like guns and roses for that sort of fantasy of what it would mean to live in LA um and to you know be involved in the scene there the the drugs and the the drink and uh you know the flash and the the fantasy so uh you know, I don't know there's there's still some genre implications here that I'm not certain about, um, but based on the article's uh sort of description of hard rock, I think we can take a listen to. Guns N' Roses' most popular song at the time, the late 80s, and talk about it specifically. And so I got to scroll back up to the beginning of the article where the song Sweet Child of Mine is mentioned. It's become a number one single for the band in 1988. Um, So I think that's what we'll do. We'll take a listen to Sweet Child of Mine. Not together, so separately. We're going to take a break here. Um, A break long enough for you and I to go listen to Sweet Child of Mine. And then we'll come back and discuss the song in terms of hard rock, in terms of authenticity or fantasy So go take a listen to the song and join me on the other side of the break. Here we go. (laughs) All right, you probably heard the tail end of the song as we open this segment. So... Let's go back to the very beginning of the song. It, it starts with very iconic uh, guitar riff by Slash. And, you know, I would say that uh, Slash may be the most authentic member of the group. He seems like an authentically good... Lead guitar player, so I'll give him his due there. I also uh, recently heard him on <laughs> um, an episode of "Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me." He, I mean, he seemed like a nice guy <laughs> overall. <laughs> um, so you know, a great opening to any rock song. And then the full band comes in you know fairly aggressive drummer uh, but you know mid-tempo song not anything at the outset too too hard or heavy um, until Axl Rose's voice appears (laughs) I don't know I think probably for me that's the least, um, least appealing part of the band Guns N' Roses is Axl Rose. His voice—he sounds, you know, like a cat being strangled most of the time. Um, and of course, in the late '80s, music videos were how many of us, the kids, <laughs> got um, our music and. I don't know, he just he, he had that way of twisting his body a lot like a snake or a worm. Um, and then he opened his mouth very I don't know, very wide <laughs> most of the time. Um but there was something about his face that resembled a rat to me, so Uh, Very unappealing, um, singer in a lot of different ways. Um, and it's kind of interesting that Sweet Child of Mine being their most popular song. It, it's, it seems to me, if we focus on the lyrics, the most inauthentic song for the band, um, So if we want to think about the song in terms of authenticity, yeah, Slash and the band as a whole, musically, they have that hard rock sound. Pretty solid. But if we focus on the lyrics of the song, and if we know a little bit about Axl Rose's background, we learned some of that from the article. You can pick up on other sources. This song is a fantasy. This song is not that authentic reality that I think uh, at least uh, Tenenbaum, the writer of the article, wants to associate with Guns N' Roses and hard rock music. Uh, You know, those first lines, she's got a smile, it seems to me, reminds me of childhood memories when everything was as fresh as a a bright blue sky Um, from... What I understand of Axl Rose's childhood, (laughs) I don't know that he had a lot of childhood memories where everything was as fresh as a bright blue sky. Um, Also interesting, I learned that the song was written about his girlfriend at the time who became his wife for a very short period of time. Um and this uh woman was a daughter of one of the Everly brothers. <laughs> the Everly brothers. So again, it's sort of a, a fantasy. Um Axel Rose the singer looking back on a childhood that maybe he's wanting to have been a little bit more bright and hopeful than it was, um, writing a song about, uh, a woman who's, uh, you know, attached to, you know, early rock and roll royalty, the Everly brothers. Very, very, again, a fantasy for most of the kids who would be listening. Um, As we move through to the second verse, that second half of the second verse, uh, I think is where we get a little bit more of a authentic portrayal of Axl Rose's childhood. Um, We've got the lines, her hair reminds me of a warm, safe place where as a child I'd hide and pray for the thunder and the rain to quietly pass me by. And so there you can hear in the lyrics, the turbulence, that I think uh was a good part of his childhood, and you can just imagine him going to a you know a closet or <laughs> um, maybe behind a um curtains of a a window or um you know just uh a, a place to hide away from the trouble in his childhood um so that makes sense to me. I think that's an authentic ending to the second verse. Um, but yeah, you know, the song as a whole, like I said, it uh it seems it, it seems one of the least authentic songs that I associate with Guns N' Roses. Um it seems maybe the most calculating song I can imagine that this song was uh written to be a hit, you know, so yes, Guns N' Roses, the hard rock um, band is wanting to be authentic to show what it's like to, you know, live in the uh, on the gritty streets of LA, mid eighties, um, to come from these difficult maybe backgrounds and this is the one, this song is, is definitely not that. It's the opposite of that in a lot of ways. Even the, I mean, <clears throat> you know, the instrumentation, it's, it's it's solid. It's mid-tempo. It's, you know, I mean, some of the Guitar Hero stuff and the second half of the song, um, even that stuff is tasteful. There's nothing that's just going to break your face off or... Assault Your Eardrums. So, um, I think there's, again, a band that wants to be authentic, yes, but also a band that wants to sell records and, you know, <laughs> make money and become famous. Um, and I think a lot of that sort of more calculated part to this, uh, of them as, as band members, um, can be witnessed here in a song like this. <clears throat> um, I hope uh, you didn't listen to the radio edit of the song. Um, according to the article, um, you know, Axl Rose got mad that the record company edited the song down to like three and a half minutes or, or so. <laughs> and it's, I think, on the album close to a six minute song. The version I listened to was a little over five minutes, so I guess there's several different versions floating around there. Um, Yeah, so again, a hit song, popular song, good instrumentation. The only thing that bugs me <laughs> about it is Axl Rose, his voice, his sort of persona, I guess. And the fact that of all the songs that you might focus on, um, as I mean, of all the songs that would be the most popular. Um, even of the songs where if you say Guns N' Roses, a lot of people will think of this particular song. Um, like this one is is, I don't know, the one of the least authentic songs to the band, if we're wanting to focus on authenticity as being important to the to the genre of hard rock, into the band itself. Yeah, um, stick around, one last segment to go. Maybe a more sort of personal reason as to why Guns N' Roses was you know, never really, a, um, I don't know, uh, of much interest to me. And we'll come back talk about that in just a second. Trevor Ooh. Alici is at a bar. And I'm talking with a Guns N' Roses fan. <laughs> Why do you like Guns N' Roses?
1: Uh, I love their music. It's just, it vibes with me.
0: Oh, come on. <laughs> Don't say vibes. What is it? What do you like about it?
1: It's very primal the, the guitar, uh, Axel's voice.
0: You like his voice? I
1: do like it. I love his voice.
0: Well, uh, so what about his voice?
1: Like I said, it, it's just a very like primal where he's just kind of like yelling. Uh, Indeed. I love Slash.
0: Well, okay. What do you like about Slash? His hat? You like about his, like, his hat? I love
1: his hat, yes. But he's just an amazing guitarist. Uh, like some, I would say some of the best guitar solos are by Slash.
0: And uh, the uh, guitar the...
1: intros.
0: I mean, come on. Okay. Uh,
1: uh, you know.
0: What's well, a song that has a great guitar intro? Of the Guns N' Roses or of anything? Um,
1: sweet Child of Mine. I mean, come on. Right. Sweet Child of Mine. That is like probably the greatest guitar intro of all time.
0: It's a pretty bold statement. You know, it's yeah, pretty bold. I stand,
1: I stand behind that.
0: I stand behind that. Okay. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Buckethead? No, no, not until you mentioned it. That's too bad. Okay, well, we'll leave that discussion for later, I guess. Um, anything else you want to say about Guns N' Roses? Like any, like, is it a particular like uh, youthful experience, or is it as an adult that you look back and say, "No, I was, I was completely 100% right. Guns N' Roses were awesome."
1: No, it's not a new revelation. Um, I loved them. I associate them probably with, like, college, early 90s. Um, Their music is epic to me. Like, it tells, like, you know, November Rain. That's an epic song. And a lot of their music, it just has that build that I love, that resonates with me.
0: Okay. Well... Thanks for sharing. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just love the Psycho Killer, Keska que Say. That's um, <laughs> the soundtrack to that little interview. <laughs> so, I, you know, men on the street, walk to a bar, talk to a fan. And, you know, she picked up on, you know, an aspect of Guns N' Roses that, yes, I think I can't deny Slash is top-notch lead guitar player. And she was right. You know, the intro to Sweet Child of Mine is fairly iconic now. Uh, You know, as I said, the voice, Axl Rose the The persona uh the person uh, <laughs> I couldn't disagree more, but if we go back to my childhood, the roots of my distaste for guns and roses. <laughs> was there at the very beginning because I, I don't know uh so I distinctly remember when I was in middle school that my friends and I would uh were on like the the jungle gym <laughs> <laughs> and we would be rapping to Beastie Boys, their debut album, was out at that time. And, you know, Paul Revere was a pretty popular song back then. Um, So I distinctly remember that. But I also think that, um, you know, Guns N' Roses' Appetite for Destruction came out a little bit later. And I want to say that it's possible that my friends and I were on the playground singing some of those songs. Um, It's possible. It's a vague, maybe vague memory. Maybe I made it up. But I certainly remember going into high school. And now you must understand that at my high school, we had an eighth grade wing of the building. So as an eighth grader, I was actually in high school. Um, they kept us on one hall of the of the building <laughs> away from the rest of the legitimate high schoolers, I guess. Um, but we were able to be in the marching band. So, you know, after school was done, I would hang around and I would practice in the marching band and go to games and all that kind of stuff. So um, you had to grow up quick is what I'm trying to say. And part of that maturation process was, um, you know, getting a seat at a table in the cafeteria and trying, I guess, probably to to seem like you were a little bit cooler, maybe a little bit older than you were certainly than you thought you were even, um, my friends and I, I think almost all of us had older siblings, whether it was an older brother or an older sister. So I think in that way we were introduced to some of the, you know, music that the older kids were listening to because of our older siblings. Um, my brother, older brother, you know, his m- musical tastes were all over the place <clears throat> at that time. Um, I had a n- more narrow bandwidth. Um, I don't recall him really ever being that heavy into Guns N' Roses, but I do recall having conversations at, in, in the cafeteria lunch table. Um, with my friends about Guns N' Roses, and you know they were they they were the kids that the article mentions as you know being attracted to the sound, to maybe that primal, aggressive um, type of attitude in the music and also in the personalities. Um, I remember my friends really liked it, and I. Even back then, I I just I don't know. It, it was <laughs> it wasn't something I was interested in. Um, the 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 singing, I I just didn't think Axl Rose's voice was appealing at all. Um, and then you know when I would see him on MTV videos when they still played videos, he just looked like a rat. So I didn't think that you know the the band. Uh, it certainly didn't speak to me. It certainly didn't represent anything about me. Um, you know the the music I was into at the time. Um, I liked some Harry Connick Jr. <laughs> um, but REM was uh, I was pretty big into them in the late eighties, early nineties. And a band called Jellyfish. So I was more into the, I don't know, jangly, pop kind of experimental. And then you just throw in Harry Connick Jr., who's, uh, you know, I thought his his voice was certainly an upgrade on Axl Rose. Um, But being sort of a band nerd, I was kind of interested in the orchestral experience. Um, of Harry Connick Jr. So with Guns N' Roses, it felt like, yeah, I mean, they were, they were obviously popular. Um, and it was one of those things that I can sort of pinpoint in my life where I noticed the popular thing. I noticed what, you know, people around me were interested in, even my friends. I mean, my friends, I had, you know, a good bit in common with them we were all band nerds and just basic nerds. (laughs) But that was something that I, I recognized. This is popular, which doesn't make it any good necessarily. And in fact, my dislike of it is something that is important to me because I could very easily knuckle under and say, "Oh yeah, Guns N' Roses, they're great," and you know Slash with his top hat and Axel he, you know, I mean, with his bandana, <laughs> I could have knuckled under, yeah. But I just, yeah, I just didn't appeal to me. I wasn't interested, and I sort of held firm to that. Um, and so maybe my. Dislike of Guns N' Roses, that may have been a very formative experience that turned me into the overcritical Trevor Alici that I am today. Um, you know, that, it was a pivotal point, I think, in my, my development, my maturation. Um, maybe responsible for this podcast. So, in a weird way, I have to I have to thank you, Guns N' Roses. I have to thank you, Axl Rose. (laughs) (laughs) All right, all right. So, I hope you enjoyed this trip down memory lane. Um, I've noticed that, you know, I guess Guns N' Roses is having a a renaissance. Um, They're on a, a soundtrack currently, um, at least to the trailer of a, of a film, and I, I don't know, all these classic rock stations that I listen to that populate the airwaves these days are now playing Guns N' Roses songs, um, which brings to mind an interesting question. <clears throat> what is classic rock? I'm going to plant the seed there because on a future podcast, I'm going to dig into that topic. What is classic rock? I have a particular definition in mind. Um, And so we'll talk about is Guns N' Roses classic rock? I'm not going to show you my cards on that one just yet. You're going to have to come back and listen to... A future episode on Classic Rock. Um, but that does it for me today. Um, remember, Trevor Alici, 1C in Alici, if you are going to email the show, send me a message, let me know what you think. Um, and again, suggest some improvements to the podcast, suggest some future topics that you would like to hear coming from the podcast and overcritical um, approach to whatever topic you're interested in. Um, and I'll look for you there. Just be sure to listen for me here.